Good morning once again. Time to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 3. Those of you who are new, we are currently doing a study through the book of Joshua here at Calvary on Sunday morning, looking at it, yes, historically, as a record of Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan, but also looking at it spiritually as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. Now, we are currently in a section that runs from verse 10 of chapter 1 through verse 15 of chapter 5, a section that we've entitled The Preparation for Victory. And this morning we find ourselves in a subset of that main point, a section I'm calling Crossing into the Resurrection Life, which covers chapters 3 and 4. The resurrection life, of course, is the life of the Spirit. And we've said many times before that Israel in the wilderness and then the coming into the promised land signifies the believer who is living in a kind of a wilderness spiritual existence. You know, carnality, compromise, complaining, uh, unbelief, all of these things characterize the wilderness. Many Christians, of course, who have come out of Egypt and are saved, are still in a spiritual wilderness. They're kind of wandering around with any, without any real sense of purpose. And much of it is because they're not really willing to trust God to bring them into the life of the Spirit. It's a life of faith. And so the promise unrepresented then the life of the Spirit, that life of fruitfulness, victory, and joy, and so on, that God desires to bring all of His children into. And you see, that's the first point. There are several principles, six altogether, that come out of these two chapters that really are the key, I think, of what it means to enter into uh, the life of the Spirit. The first one we talked about last week was we need to cling to the promises of God. Now, this actually is found in the last few verses of chapter 2, which really belongs to chapter 3. But God had promised Israel. We talked about this. We showed you scriptures. God had promised Israel that he was going to bring them into the land of Canaan and give them victory over the enemies there, and it would become their land. He reaffirmed or confirmed that promise at the end of chapter 2. But the idea is this. Before we can live the life God wants us to live, we have to know what God has promised us, what God wants for our lives. Does God want his children to walk around aimlessly in a spiritual wilderness their whole life? Or does God want us to move into the life of the Spirit, the life of power and victory, fruitfulness and joy? I think it's obvious, right? And we showed you scriptures last week where God has promised his people in the new covenant. That is, it is his will that we move into the life of the Spirit. He wants all of us. Some people think, well, you know, I mean, that's that kind of a life of power and all. Isn't that for like pastors and missionaries and evangelists? You know, I'm just an ordinary Christian, folks. There are no such thing as an ordinary Christian. We are all children of God. God has got a purpose for all of our lives, and that is to glorify his name and to be used to, to defeat the enemy which, of course, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded people's minds to keep them in darkness so that he can eventually cause them to not receive the gift of eternal life that God is offering. So God wants all of us walking in victory. And it's his will. We don't have to pray about this. God, is it your will that I be filled with the Spirit? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's God's will that all of his children are filled with the Spirit and walk in that power. But here's the thing. It is not something that we can do ourselves. It's not something we can determine, well, I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to enter into the life of the Spirit. No. That brings us to the second principle we see here. We have to depend on God's power. On God's power. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. 
he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days. Let me stop there. Finally, the wilderness wandering has come to an end. Forty years of transversing back and forth across the desert, really going nowhere. And for many of those people, it was a death march because they had failed to enter into God's rest when he had led them there 40 years earlier. Their unbelief kept them out. God drove them back into the wilderness. And so for 40 years, wherever they wandered, they left graves behind them until that entire generation died out. And then the younger generation was led in by God into the promised land. But here we go now. This younger generation has finally come to the end of this wandering. And here they are now, camped right by the Jordan River. The Jordan River was in front of them. Beyond it was the promised land they could see with their eyes. It must have seemed like a dream in some ways. After 40 years of hearing their parents when they were little kids tell them about this good land God was going to bring them into one day. And now finally, it's in plain view. And yet God made them camp there by the banks of the Jordan River for three days before leaving them in. Why? Well, as we said last week, Verse 15 tells us that this was the time of the year when the, over, when the Jordan overflowed its banks. See, in the spring of the year when the snow melts from on the top of Mount Hermon, it runs into the Jordan, which starts at the base of Mount Hermon, from there into the Sea of Galilee, and from there down the Jordan Valley into the Dead Sea. The word Jordan means the one that descends. It drops 1,500 feet from Mount Hermon, the base of Mount Hermon, to where these people were camped at this time. The River Jordan had dropped 1,500 feet. It was overflowing its banks. And as we said last week, this time of the year, where Israel was camped in this location, that Jordan River was a swollen, raging, whitewater rapid, anywhere from several hundred yards to a mile wide. Can you imagine that? I mean, here you are. You can see the promised land. But standing in front of you as an obstacle, blocking your way, is the Jordan River. And I'm telling you, folks, I think God purposely purposely brought them to the banks of the Jordan River and then made them camp there for three days looking at that thing because, I believe, he wanted it to sink in really well. No pun intended. That there was no way, from a human standpoint, they were going to cross that river in their own human strength. I think God wanted to show them very clearly they were absolutely helpless and therefore totally dependent on God to get them through that obstacle. You know, there are times in our lives as we serve the Lord and walk with Him that He will lead us to obstacles at times. Things that stand in our way between us and we know what God's perfect will is for our lives. And often these obstacles are, you know, insurmountable, impassable, and impossible for us to overcome. And I think He does it to bring us to the end of ourselves. God wants us to realize very clearly from time to time that the life that we're living is a supernatural life. It's not something that we can muster up the energy or the strength to live ourselves. It's a supernatural life. Certainly walking in the Spirit is a supernatural thing. And God wants us to know that, you know what, there are going to be many times in life where He's going to have to remind us that, you know, this is an obstacle, whatever it might be, and the Jordan River, as we said last week, is representative of whatever it is in your life that's standing between you and God's perfect plan for your life. It could be an old habit that still hasn't died yet. It's still got a hold of you. It could be fear. It could be a lot of things. Things that you've tried to defeat and beat on your own, but 
you've had no success. And I think God from time to time says, remember me. I'm the only one who can give you victory over those things. There are three very powerful enemies that we face every single day. It's the world, the devil, and the flesh. And we are no match for any one of those in our own strength. And you put them all together, they become an insurmountable obstacle. Standing between us and what God has called us to. And God wants us to know that, look, I need to sometimes remind you that I alone can bring you through these things. I, I want to break you of self-reliance and self-confidence. I want to bring you to a place that Paul was brought to when he said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak in my own strength, when I know I haven't got the strength to do this, and I rely on God's strength, then I am really strong. And listen to me, anything that stands in the way of you reaching out and receiving by faith, the promises God has given to you, those promises that will allow you to enter into all the fullness of what he has for your life, I mean, that becomes your Jordan. That's what's holding you back. How do you get through it? How do you overcome it? Well, first of all, you cling to God's promise. Has he promised you victory? You better believe he has. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us, right? The battle is not yours. It is mine, says the Lord. It is God's will that we have victory. That's a promise. We can cling to that. We know that it's not in us to have victory, though. That becomes his responsibility. It's his power. So I depend on that. Very important that we understand this before we can ever enter into God's best for our lives. But, you know, spiritually speaking, there's another reason why I believe God made them wait there by the Jordan for three days before bringing them into the promised land. Because I see in this, these three days correspond, I, I believe, to the three days that Jesus was dead and buried in the tomb before he arose in resurrection power, right? And I believe the Holy Spirit is using this to teach us the same principle. That the death of self always precedes the resurrection life which Canaan represents. But listen, before Jesus rose in resurrection power, he first had to be crucified on Calvary, right? And before he was willing to go to Calvary, he first experienced his Gethsemane. Where he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. How essential is that? Before we're going to be willing to die to self, which is what is necessary for God to raise us in resurrection power in the sense that we now walk in the Spirit, we've got to come to a place of brokenness and full surrender. No longer saying, God, here's what I want to do. Here's how I want my life to be blessed. Now will you come alongside me and make it happen? We have to come to a place of brokenness and surrender. We say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's not easy. That's not easy. But it's necessary. If we're going to be willing to die to self and then experience the fullness of God's power in our lives, that life of the Spirit. So, very important point. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can bring us into resurrection life. We can't do it through our own strength and through our own good works. We have to depend on His power. Now, that brings us to the third principle that I see here. We, first of all, have to cling to His promises. Secondly, depend on His power. Thirdly, be led by His Word. In verse 2, again, we read, so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go. For you have not passed this way before. The thing that's important for us to see here 
is that a dramatic change has taken place in how Israel is going to be led into the promised land as opposed to how they had been led for 40 years through the wilderness. You see, during all those years in the wilderness, they were led by the Shekinah glory. The presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That Shekinah glory was the visible presence of God among them. When the Shekinah glory lifted up and began to move, they broke camp and began to move. When the Shekinah glory stopped and hovered over a place, that's where they set up camp. They were led by God all those years in the wilderness by his visible manifestation. It was a visible, dramatic, miraculous display of power that God used to lead them those 40 years in the wilderness. But as they're about to enter Canaan, they're no longer going to be led by pillars of cloud and fire. Now they are to follow after the Ark of the Covenant. Suddenly the Ark of the Covenant in the record of Israel's history uh, moves to a place of prominence. In fact, in chapters 3 and 4 alone, it's mentioned 20 times. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular wooden box that measured about 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide by 2 foot 3 inches high. It was covered inside and out with gold and had on the top of it a lid made of pure gold called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat, there were two cherubim, angels, one at each end, kneeling, facing each other with their heads bowed down and their wings outstretched upward, nearly touching tip to tip directly above the mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat between the cherubim that God was symbolically understood to dwell. This was his symbolic throne on the earth. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant were three items. There were the tablets of the law, the stone tablets that God gave to Moses upon which the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments. There was a pot of manna, you know, the bread from heaven that God had rained down upon them for 40 years. And there was Aaron's staff that had budded with fresh flowers and almonds in the rebellion of Korah, who challenged Aaron's right to be a priest, the high priest. And so they put God to the test and God, by causing Aaron's rod or staff to bud and bring forth almonds, this signifies that God had chosen Aaron to be the high priest and his sons of the nation. But the ark represented, as we said, the throne of God, the ark represented the presence of God and the ark went before them, which uh, God is using to tell us that, that victory in the Christian life, I believe, is something that only God can lead us into. But even more specifically, the Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of the Testimony. Why? Because it contained the law of God written on tablets of stone, which were also called the tablets of the testimony, which is another title for the Word of God. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 88, he said, Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth, or in other words, the word of God. So in essence, listen, they were now going to be led by the word of God. Folks, it's the word of God that directs and leads God's people into victory today. You know, the wilderness, as we've already said, spoke of immaturity and carnality. And in that place of carnality and immaturity, God needed to lead his people through constant displays of supernatural power. But Canaan represents maturity, life in the Spirit. And those who are spiritually mature don't look to God to lead their lives through constant signs and wonders. They look to be led by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. 
don't know if you've experienced this, but you will discover that those Christians who are always running after signs and wonders, who are constantly looking for supernatural experiences from the Spirit, well, they are always the most immature and carnal in their walk with God. They often think they're the most spiritual. But you see, often what they do is they run looking for signs and wonders, and they're not really feeding on the Word of God. And you know what? Miracles are spectacular, and I'm not putting miracles down. I'd love to see some, all right? But you don't grow through miracles. You don't get strong through miracles. You can't be fruitful and victorious through miracles. Miracles are like a really great dessert. I mean... After a good meal, to have a really awesome dessert, wow, that's great, isn't it? You can't live on dessert. You can't grow healthy on dessert. Christians that are always running after spiritual experiences, they're always feeding on the candy, on the dessert. But they're not giving themselves what they need to grow strong spiritually, which is the Word of God. And so in verse 4 we read again, Yet there shall be a space between you and the ark, talking to the children of Israel, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. The last part is better translated, for you have not been led in this manner before. 2,000 cubits was roughly 3,000 feet or a little more than half a mile. You say, why did God want so much space? Why did he want such a large gap between the ark and the people? Well, from a practical standpoint, there's two and a half million Israelites in the wilderness waiting to cross the Jordan River. It's a lot of people, right? You don't want them crowding around the ark. You wanted the ark in a place where everyone could see it clearly, where it was not obscured at all. Therefore, the ark was given a place of honor, a place all by itself so that it stood out and became the absolute center of attention, which was going to be important if they were going to follow it into victory. You know, there are many churches that have not given the Word of God its proper place. They haven't set it apart in a place all by itself, a place of honor, where it can be clearly seen and focused on as the only source of truth that can lead a person into a life of blessing and victory. So many pastors include the Bible in their teaching, but it's only on a very superficial level. They teach from the Bible. They give it some lip service, but they don't really teach the Bible. They read a verse or two and then launch out into a message using stories based on TV shows. Uh, there was a, a, a curriculum circulating the church a few years ago that actually was designed for small groups to have small groups teach God's principles out of old TV shows like the Andy Griffith Show and uh, Mayberry. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, we have really gotten away. We don't, apparently we don't believe anymore the Word of God is living and powerful. We have to prop it up with all kinds of goofy little props because we just can't teach it plainly and clearly because people won't come and listen to it. You know, that, that's why I've said before, I'll say it again. I've never spoken down to you guys. I, when I teach the Bible, I teach it the way I would want it to be taught to me. Because I believe this way. If we keep it way down here for you folks, you'll never rise above that level. If we put it up here, where it belongs, it's, you're going to have to grow a little bit to reach that, but it's going to be good. It's just sad today, though, to see what's... I mean, I've heard of many churches doing messages and series based on the latest best-selling book, like The Shack, or based on the latest New Age teaching that maybe Oprah is, is pushing that week, like Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth or Rhonda Burns' The Secret. 
which is just visualization. Old as the Garden of Eden, basically. You know, President Obama's old pastor is in the news again. The Reverend Jeremiah Wright. His name is right. His theology is wrong. He's embraced and is teaching something called black liberation theology, which is just Christianized Marxism. And, of course, we have the emerging church, or as some have called it, the emergent church. Not that all of these churches are bad, don't get me wrong, but many in the emerging church movement believe that doctrine divides. And we have to bring folks together. That's what it's all about, bringing people together. So we can't really focus on doctrine. Let's focus on experiences that bring us together, such as contemplative prayer and so on and so forth. We've talked about that. Uh, when we looked at chapter 1. Not that every emerging church believes this or teaches this, but many of them believe that, you know, you can't really teach the doctrine. It divides. Well, folks, the Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. A sword cuts. It divides. That's its purpose. To divide the true from the false. You don't use a sword to bring together. You use a sword to divide. We need to divide the true from the false. The only basis for true unity anyways is truth. Jesus said, Father, bring them together. Make them one. By your truth, your word is truth. It's just sad to see what's happening. And of course, and here I'm going to step on some toes. I just know it. But I'm really not. But We, you know, I would be remiss if, I, if we didn't mention the biggest way the Bible has been marginalized, obscured, and relegated to a place of irrelevance in many churches today, and that is through the teaching of psychology. Much of psychology, not all, but much, although it has, has been passed off as a science, is actually a religious system that places man at the center instead of God. In that regard, it's a religion of humanism, and that's why... Uh, a major branch of it is called humanistic psych psychology. I mean, think about this. For 1,900 years, the cure of souls used to be handled by clergymen in the church. I mean, you know, what did Christians do for 1,900 years before psychology came on the scene? I'll tell you what they did. They flourished under the teaching of God's Word and the power of the Spirit and the biblical counseling ministries of godly pastors and Spirit-filled Christians, believers, who made up the body of Christ, the body of Christ instructed by the Lord to bear each other's burdens, to love one another, right? To encourage each other and pray for one another. The body of Christ ministered to itself. We didn't need professionals. We had the Holy Spirit. We had the divine nature within all of us through the power of the Spirit. We needed some unbeliever who was expert in some field that was just invented 100 years ago. We need that kind of thing to help us live the godly life that God wants us to live. I mean, remember, these people were not free of problems. Sometimes we think we're the only ones that got problems. You study the history of the church throughout the centuries. These people lived in poverty, abject poverty. They lived with diseases. I'm talking about epidemics. They were slaves, many of them. And yet, they won their world to Christ. They stood for truth. Yes, they were beaten and persecuted and killed. But today we have the word of God in our laps that they died to preserve so that we could read it and study it and hopefully... Live it. But see, all that changed when psychology came on the scene. Martin and Deidre Bobkin in their book Psychoheresy explain, and I quote, With the rise of psychological counseling in the 20th century, 
Biblical counseling waned until it is almost non-existent. The cure of souls, which was once a vital ministry of the church, has now in this 20th century been displaced by a cure of minds called psychotherapy. They go on to say in this book, as soon as religious problems were medicalized, in other words, made into diseases, they became psychiatric problems. Problems of thought and behavior once considered to be the concern of clergymen were transformed into medical and therefore supposedly scientific problems. They were then transferred from the church to the couch. The recipe was simple. Replace the cure of souls with the cure of minds by confusing an abstraction, the mind, with a biological organ, the brain, and they're not the same thing, and thus convince people that mental healing and medical healing are the same. Stir in a dash of theory disguised as fact, call it all science, and put it into the realm of medicine, and the rest is history. Let me tell you something. The devil pulled off a major coup when he psychologized the church. Recovery replaced repentance. Therapy replaced theology. Sin was turned into sickness. And happiness has replaced holiness as the chief pursuit of the Christian life. Thomas Sass, not a Christian, secular guy, considered one of the tops in his field. The guy all the other psychiatrists and psychologists looked up to. Thomas Sass, in his book, The Myth of Psychotherapy, said, and I quote, Through psychotherapy, we have turned the salvation of sinful souls into the cure of sick minds. Not my words, his words. He was Jewish. He wasn't a Christian. And in his book, he made some startling statements. He said, basically, you Christians have the answer. You want to take all this stuff back into the church. What's it doing out here with us? We've got nothing to offer. Artie Lang, again, another secular guy, one of the masters that people look to, a great master in psychiatry. Listen to what he said, and I'm quoting him. I cannot think of one thing that psychology has offered the human race of any benefit in the area of interpersonal relationships in its entire history. We haven't gotten beyond Plato, Aristotle, or Shakespeare, end quote. And yet Christian leaders by the thousands have bought into the lie of psychology. Now look, I'm not saying that Christian psychologists are evil. Many are fine Christians who love the Lord and really want to help people. I don't question their motives. I question their methods. And even for us who are Christians, there are, there are ways that seem right, but we have bought into some misconceptions. Look, all psychology is fundamentally, listen, fundamentally man-centered. And it starts out with a faulty premise, and that is that man is basically good, and the evil that he does and the problems that he experiences in the way of disorders and emotional problems can pretty much be traced back to some abuse or trauma that he suffered or she suffered when they were a youth. At very least, something in their past, some kind of a trauma or emotional experience, maybe when they were little again, as babies, when they cried, their mom didn't pick them up and hold them quick enough or didn't, you know, when they were hungry and cried, she didn't feed them quick enough. And this created a, a little uh, uh, self-esteem problem within their little heart and a little disordered developed until finally, you know, they, they grew up and they, they were a mess. You know, and, and, and it just their life is just a mess. Look, psychology paints man as a victim. See, they, they can't help themselves that they're a mess. 
Because mom or dad or somebody else or a teacher or somebody didn't give them what they needed when they were younger. So now they got this, they're just a little ball of insecurity. It's all, their self-esteem has been damaged, you know, and, and now they do these things and they hurt other people. But they, it's not really their fault, they're victims. Psychology paints man as a victim. God sees him as a sinner. Secular psychotherapist Nathaniel Brandon, in his book, The Psychology of Self and Honoring the Self, says views even criminal violence as a psychological problem. Here's what he says. He said, I cannot think of a single psychological problem from depression to fear of intimacy to criminal violence that is not traceable to a poor self-concept. Until we are willing to honor the self and proudly proclaim our right to do so, overall, you evangelicals who believe the Bible says we're sinners and not victims, well, until we're ready to do that, we cannot fight for self-esteem and we cannot achieve it. The sad thing about it is many Christian leaders in the church today are sounding just like the humanistic psychologists of the world. Listen to what Robert Schuller said. Robert Schuller said, and I quote, a person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. That's hell. It's not really a place. It's low self-esteem. Bruce Naramore, nephew of Clyde Naramore, another of the early godfathers of Christian psychology, unashamedly writes, listen, under the influence of humanistic psychologists like Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, many of us Christians have begun to see our need for self-love and self-esteem, end quote. You mean to tell me we need to turn to godless atheists to tell us how to be Christians? Because we don't know how to... We're going to lean on the counsel of an ungodly atheist who's got something that we can benefit from that will help us to be all that God wants us to be, the same God who put within all of us through the new birth, the divine nature? You've got to be kidding me. What about Psalm 1, verse 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Look. Even somebody like Jim Dobson, who I love and respect. He has done so much good for the body of Christ in the area of family and marriage and so on. But Jim is a psychologist. And you can't but help it when you drink from those polluted wells. It can't help but poison some of the ways you look at things. And here's what he said. And I quote, in a very real sense, the health of an entire society depends on the ease with which the individual members gain personal acceptance. Thus, whenever the keys to self-esteem are seemingly out of reach for a large percentage of the, of the people, as in 20th century America, he says, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and social disorder will certainly occur, end quote. Wow. That's a mouthful. All of that can be traced back to low self-esteem. You know, it's interesting that they did a survey among prisoners years ago. They, they pulled 200 prisoners and asked them to rate themselves. You know, every one of them rated themselves above average, and every one of them considered themselves to be good people. Folks, the problem is not low self-esteem. It's high self-esteem. That's the problem. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But Dave Hunt, seeking to refute that statement by Dobson, said, and I quote, hatred, violence, and social disorder, rather than arising out of, a, out of willful rebellion and sin, are caused by a lack of self-esteem, which is somehow out of reach for these victims of modern life? Instead of pride and unwillingness to repent of our sin being the great barrier between men and God, 
We are now being told that such a message is demeaning to our quote-unquote authentic personhood and the paramount need is to build up everyone's self-esteem, end quote. As I just said, at the heart of all of men's problems is not low self-esteem, it's high self-esteem, otherwise known as pride, which manifests itself as selfishness and self-centeredness and the idea that we know better than God what's best for our lives. The result is a world that is filled with sin and suffering, a world that is being destroyed not from low self-worth, but from self-love and self-worship run amok. The Bible, and may I underline that, the Bible says clearly that you and I are responsible for the choices that we make in life and no one else. We have a free will. We can choose to either obey what God has said in his word or we can choose to not obey it. But man is not an innocent victim inflicted with a disease of low self-esteem, which causes him to do wrongly and act violently at times. No, the Bible never says that. His problem is rebellion against God, fueled by pride and selfishness, in which he doesn't need, listen, years of therapy and recovery. He needs to get on his face, repent of his sins, receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and to begin to live a Christ-centered life, a life that, as Paul said, esteems others more important than yourself. Years ago, there was a pastor I read about. He was, had this guy come to his church. This young guy was in therapy for years. I mean, he was drinking self-esteem, teaching like crazy because he had such a problem with things and he couldn't function and he was a mess, you know? And so he comes to another church and another pastor, you know, and, and here's my problems. Woe is me. And I have low self-esteem. And I just don't, I need to be built up in my self-esteem. Otherwise, I keep doing these things. And the pastor, after listening to him for a while, said, you know what? You don't have a problem with low self-esteem. Your problem is pride. Your problem is a preoccupation with yourself. You are so focused on yourself. The problems that you have are not because you don't think too low of yourself. You think too highly of yourself. And you need to get on your face before God and repent of this narcissism and get your heart right with God and begin to focus on other people for a while. The pastor said the kid looked at him for about a minute, staring at him. <laughs> he had never heard this. And then he said to the pastor, I think you're right. Amazing, right? These things used to be solved in the church. And now people are going to the world. And the world is adding to the problem. The problem, folks, is always self. Can I say it again? The problem in our lives is always self. That's why the Bible didn't say esteem it, feed it, uh, honor it, exalt it. It says kill it, crucify it, destroy it. And the minute you think you got the thing beaten down into death, it rises up again. You've got to keep beating the thing down every day. Because self is always going to want to rise up and control you. But you're not going to hear that in the world. The world's going to feed that monster. In the church, we know we've got to strangle it to death. I think this is why so many Christians today wander in a spiritual wilderness their whole life. Because their pastors and leaders don't give the Bible its proper place in their church. A place of honor. Holding it up. Remember it says the, the Levites bore the ark. If you read about the Ark of the Covenant, it was made with rings on the very bottom and they would slide poles through it and it was carried on the shoulders of the Kohathites, a family of the Levites. It was held up. But today the church isn't doing that. But until churches get back to giving God's word a place of honor, 
holding and up, esteeming it and not self above all else. Where we see it as, for what it is, the wisdom of God in print. Well, until that happens, people are not going to advance in their walk with God. In fact, many churches, instead of doing that very thing, they've allowed the word to be obscured by a lot of other teachings and programs and philosophies that contain what the Bible calls the wisdom of the world, which is then piled up around and on top of God's book so that their people in these churches never see clearly that God's word alone has the capacity to lead and guide and govern their lives, not man's programs, ideas, or wisdom. It's no wonder to me that so many Christians now who are going to these churches, who are not, they don't, the pastors don't think the word of God is living and powerful. They don't. They, they think it's inadequate. They, they, they think they have to supplement it with the wisdom of the world. I had a professor in Bible college tell me, we have to blend the secular and the sacred if we're going to help people. I was only a young pastor. That just threw me on the floor. I had to even call for a meeting after class to talk to him about that. He affirmed it. He was a pastor in the area. No, no, we've got to blend the Bible with psychology. Hey, the Bible says that the Word of God is pure and perfect. I'm going to take the pollution of the world and blend it with what is pure and perfect. I'm going to come up with something better. Come on. No wonder people in those kind of churches wander their whole life sometimes in a spiritual wilderness and they never do enter into the resurrection life. It's because they have not read what Paul said in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10, when Paul said, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Jesus lives all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. All right, let me end by just asking this. How serious are you about going forward in your life for God? Remember now, here they are at the Jordan River. you got to be serious. If you're going to stick around there and... Whatever God's got in mind, that was pretty scary stuff. Not only did you have to somehow get past that Jordan, but on the other side were giants that you had to fight. That doesn't, a wishy-washy walk is not going to deal with that. A wishy-washy walk goes back, turns around and says, I'm going back to Egypt. Or I'm going to hang out in the wilderness. See, how committed are you to going forward with the Lord? That's the whole thing here. I mean, you get tired of wandering around in a kind of a spiritual wilderness. I mean, where your life is characterized by carnality and defeat and often depression. Where you see others living that spirit-filled life and being used by God and bearing fruit. And there's dynamic power there. There's joy and there's excitement every day when they wake up because today's a new adventure with God. And people see that and go, you know, I want that. How bad do you want it is the question. And if you long for that kind of a life, the life of the spirit, which by its very definition is a life of fruitfulness and victory, power and joy... And let me just say this to you. You need to stop playing games with God's Word. You need to stop playing games with God's Word. You need to stop giving God's Word a superficial glance from time to time. You know what I mean. I know Christians that may open the Bible once every day or every other day, open it up, read a couple verses, close it, you know. Or they come to church. Sometimes they don't even grab their Bible. But once a week when they do come to church. Then we open it, we study it together. And they go out and forget everything they've heard. 
And they go back to the world and they seek out worldly counselors, the wisdom of man, to help them to solve their problems and bring them happiness and direct their lives. It's no wonder they're wandering in the wilderness. They're not serious about God's word. You got to make God's word your life pursuit, your daily bread, and the passion of your heart. You can't give it lip service and say, I love your word, Lord, but I only want to do certain parts of it. Right? Don't we do that? Well, if I'm keeping most of it, that's good enough, isn't it? I mean, certainly I'm living with my, my boyfriend or girlfriend. I know that's wrong, but I go to church. I help other people. I'm good in a lot of other ways. Doesn't God let you have a couple of sins if you try to do good in the other stuff? Why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask him one day? Why don't you go to his word and see what he says about that? Look, we can't pick and choose what we're going we're to obey. We have to do as Jesus said. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the only way that I know to enter into the life of the Spirit. Through a heart that wants to know God more than anything. And is willing to do everything he has said. Remember, we're talking about entering into the life of the Spirit, right? The Spirit-filled life, the resurrection life. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.18? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek is be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you compare that with the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16, if you look at them, they're both the same. Same context. But one says be filled with the Spirit. The other says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you get the impression from what Paul is saying in both passages that they're interchangeable. That to be filled with the Spirit means that the word of Christ has to, be, has to dwell in you richly and vice versa. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled life that is a life that's not feeding on God's Word. Folks, this is about as basic as it gets. You know, these principles that God has placed here, they are not things you've never heard before. See, that's the problem, though. We hear these things, and we forget as we go out the door, and we have to be constantly reminded of the basics, the fundamentals of our faith. There's nothing more fundamental than the Word of God. Yes, but it's so dry. I read it and I can't die. I'm so dry. You're in a desert. The answer is you need more living water, not less. You're thirsty, you're dry. Fill yourself with more of the Lord's Word, more of the Spirit. And you pray and you cry out, Lord, I'm an empty well. I feel like I'm a dry desert. The answer is not to run from your Word, it's to run to it more. And Lord, I pray as I do, you would be gracious and fill me with revival. Read Psalm 119 this week. Now the psalmist says more than once, revive me according to your word, O Lord. Maybe your life is characterized by verse 4, where Joshua says, you know, you have never been led in this manner before. Today's a good day to start, right? Today's a good day to start and say, Lord, for most of the years of my Christian life, I have pretty much been led by my emotions or my feelings or my desires. And Lord, it's got me nowhere. I don't feel close to you. I, I don't have any power in my life. I'm completely defeated by many different things. Lord, I have never really let you lead my life through your word. I, I've never really gone to the word before I had to make a major decision and opened it and prayed and said, Lord, Show me something from your word that will help me to understand what your will is for me. But I want to start doing that, Lord. I'll tell you what. As you cling to God's promises, 
as you depend on God's power, and as you allow the Spirit to lead you through God's Word, you are on your way to your own personal promised land. There's a few other principles, though, that we need to look at before you get there. And we'll look at those other ones the next time we meet. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, it contains everything we need for life and godliness. We pray, Lord, that you would work in all of our hearts, that, Father, we would stop playing games if we are. That your word would not become, you know, just a little something we sprinkle on our life from time to time, like some kind of magic pixie dust that we think is going to somehow magically transform us into dynamic Christians. It has to be something we feed on and drink from every day. Father, give us the grace. Give us a passion for your word that we've never known before. And we pray, Lord, by the Spirit's power, you would energize the word as it enters into our minds and then into our hearts. And you will use it to transform our lives where we will go from the wilderness spiritually to a life of power and victory and fruitfulness and joy in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord. We are totally dependent upon your power and strength. And we thank you for your grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.